Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. For more than 60 years, the non-profit corporation St Vincent de Paul has provided social services to the city of Eugene in Oregon and the surrounding areas. Through its waste-based businesses, St Vincent de Paul's has generated revenue which it uses to provide resources for individuals, children and families who are all living in poverty or are homeless. I chatted to Terry MacDonald, who is the Executive Director, and I began by asking him how the non-profit came about. Well, uh, Eugene, uh, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, uh, was the largest softwood uh, lumber producing area in the United States. Uh, half of the plywood consumed in the United States um, was harvested from an area around this area, about 50 square miles around it. Uh, and so it was very prosperous based upon a timber economy. Uh, in the late 1970s, we cut the last of the big trees. Uh, and when the last of the big trees were cut, of course, there was a profound economic displacement that went on. Uh, unemployment rose very dramatically. Um, number of people that were losing their homes went up pretty dramatically. Uh, and uh, clearly, the economic displacement uh, associated with the loss of those mill jobs. Uh, so the board of this organization and staff, and staff at the time was about 27 people. The volunteer base was about 50 uh, decided that we needed to find a way to address this, uh, this systemic problem in our community. Uh, and then we needed to create long-term permanent jobs that paid well. Uh, we needed to create affordable housing. Uh, and we needed a way uh, to provide essential and emergency services, which were, of course, one of the basic underlying premises of the same as Nepal Society. Uh, and at that point, uh, uh, the staff and the board got together and said, well, you know, what do we know? Uh, we, do we know how to do charity shops. Uh, so maybe if we found more stuff to put into those charity so shops, we could sell more product and also have more stuff to give away. Uh, where are you going to get it? Uh, that was a bit of a problem since we were already harvesting what we could. And we said, well, let's go to the tip. Uh, let's go over to the tip, see if there's anything left at the tip that we could have pulled out uh, instead of having it uh, discarded. Uh, and uh, we went to the local one in this community and discovered that we could pull about four or five tons of that material out per month. And everything from shoes and belts and purses, dishes, pots and pans or whatever. Uh, and uh, that was valuable and usable material that was just being thrown away. And I said, well, hang on. Uh, if this tip, which is in a poor community, looks like this, uh, why don't we go to a tip that's a little bit further away in Portland, 100 miles away? Uh, and lo and behold, they had a lot of good stuff. And then we said, well, why should we limit ourselves to this small area? Let's go 500 miles away to the San Francisco Bay Area. And the result was is that, um, you know, we were gathering material and still do gather material from transfer sites and um, tips all over the area uh, that uh, provide us about 90 to 100 tons of stuff per day that we can then process through our stores operation here in Eugene. Uh, which then feeds the stores, which of course grown quite enormously since then. And it led us, hold to, it led us to the whole idea about how rich the waste stream was, and that if you found a way to, dis, to discipline the waste stream, uh, to recover materials from the waste stream in an organized fashion, uh, there was a lot of money. Uh, and so over the last 40 years, that's what we've been doing. 
which has allowed us to grow the various emergency services and uh, housing portions of the organization. So currently we have about 700 employees uh, and we have um, processing plants in California and Oregon, 13 stores after COVID. But we also have been able to develop uh, the largest portfolio of affordable housing uh, by Saint, of all of the same people in the United States combined. So we have about 1,600 units of affordable housing that we've developed over the last 30 years. Um, we also have been able to expand our emergency services, which was the other thing, uh, to the point where we are the major provider of emergency services for homeless individuals and families in this region. Uh, we house generally between five and 700 people uh, per night. So what do you do in the processing plants to these items? And then what happens once they've gone through your processing plants? Well, okay, so let's, let's, let's just take a, an easy example. Um, uh, mattresses. Uh, so mattresses go to the landfills, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, landfills don't like mattresses. They're difficult to handle. They account for about 1% of the waste stream. Uh, but if you have a good mattress that's going to the tip, and if you can clean it or rebuild it, uh, you can get that product out to low-income people or to resell that product. Uh, so we've been selling rebuilt box springs and mattresses for many, many years. Uh, these are ones where they've been stripped off of the of the soft material and the new material has been put on it. But then we also discovered that waste streams hate uh, mattresses. And so we uh, developed a process by which we uh, would be able to recycle an entire mattress. Uh, so we were the first commercially viable mattress recycler in the world. Uh, set up our first facility in San Francisco Bay Area in uh, 1999. Uh, and since that time, we've been processing, oh, well, right now we process about 400,000 pieces per year. We recycle about 85% of everything in a mattress. Uh, so that's an example of uh, saying, okay, well, there's a problem material. There's an opportunity to take this problem material and turn it into a profit. And it generates for us about $6 million a year in our various facilities, which gives us the opportunity to about a hire, hire about 100 people, create about 1,000 mattresses that we can put back out of the marketplace, and then create new feed stocks uh, for the circular economy. We in the UK, and I'm sure in the, in, in the United States and, and elsewhere in the world, there is such a resistance from bigger companies, corporations, to find ways to recycle products. Why is it then that you have been able to come up with a solution that, say, perhaps some great big mattress company doesn't seem to? You've asked a rather complex question, uh, which I'll try and make as simple as I can. You're right. The International Sleep Products Association, which manufactures mattresses, wants no used mattresses back into use, and they do not want rebuilds. They only want to sell new mattresses. They also, since uh, the United States generally has no product stewardship bills, don't care what goes into a mattress, uh, and they don't care once it's sold what happens to it. But as I said earlier, it's a problem material for landfill operators. And so by going to the system and saying, what's a problem material for you? And if they say this, that, or the other thing, you say, fine, if I find a solution to have that problem material removed, would you pay me to do that above the normal tip fee? Generally, the answer is yes, because it's a problem material and they definitely would like to drive up the recycling rate. So the result is to say we're not going to the industry. Having said that, we also go to the industry as an ally. So we go back to the industry and say, look, wouldn't you like to have a better environmental footprint? And by the way, we're pushing through the legislature in our various states 
product stewardship bills that will require you to recycle mattresses. And that's done right now in three states around the United States, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, and California. Uh, and those product stewardship bills passed because there was public hue and cry, sometimes aided and abetted by people like us uh, or me, that advocate that uh, this is a good way to clean up our environment and uh, make a better world. And by the way, create jobs and employment for people with multiple barriers to employment. Uh, so the product stewardship councils associated with the International Sleep Products Association have been created uh, to manage those programs in the various states. This is starting to pop up. And we expect uh, in the next few years that you will continue to see product stewardship bills that are being foisted upon the International Sleep Products Association, requiring them to fix it up. And of course, they can't do anything about it. They need vendors to, to recycle the product. And gosh, that just happens to be me. You've mentioned the affordable housing. How does that work? Well, uh, as you know, we do not have the same type of public housing programs that they do in the United Kingdom. And as a result of that, especially during the 1980s, the traditional HUD-based housing and urban development-based housing uh, was no longer built. And uh, instead of that, the Reagan administration chose in its consummate wisdom to create a program uh, where the private sector would develop affordable housing for the United States, and it's called Section 42 tax credits. They're basically allowing corporations to defer their taxes by building affordable housing, and there's a whole variety of Ponzi schemes associated with it, which I will not discuss because it'll make you sick. But basically, the private sector gets to scoop about 20% of all the profits off the top and walk away with it. But then we decided, well, hang on, why should the private sector be the only one playing I'll bet you we can figure out how to develop affordable housing. So in 1992, we did our first affordable housing project, a 40-unit SRO, a single room occupancy for very low-income singles uh, in a blighted part of downtown Eugene. Since then, we've done 30 other projects like that. So this is permanent affordable housing for singles, permanent affordable housing for families, permanent affordable housing for seniors uh, and people with disabilities. We've also uh, decided that we should go after uh, caravan parks. Uh, in this part of the world, huge amount of the uh, rural areas have uh, these small caravan parks that were developed in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, the housing stock that is in those caravan parks is quite dilapidated. And uh, basically, the, all the product that was produced in those caravan parks before 1976 uh, had walls literally paper thin. They were never intended to be permanent housing, but they're still there 50 years later. Uh, as a result of that, this is some of the worst slum housing that we have in our area, but it's also the reservoir of last resort for people that do not have public subsidies to get them into public housing. So in the state of Oregon alone, there's about 40,000 of that type of units that are occupied well past their useful life and need to be fixed, living in slum conditions. Some of them with slum conditions, meaning open sewage running down the middle of the street. So why not find an organization like St. Vincent Paul uh, that can go ahead and buy that mobile home or that, that caravan park, rehabilitate its infrastructure, demolish the old units, put in new units, that it's creating a new reservoir of permanent affordable housing at a fraction of the cost of developing Section 42 tax credit deals. And with all of that, you're now in Scotland collecting brown furniture. What do you mean by that? Well, in 2003, I got up to Edinburgh Furniture Works, and it was a nice little shop, and you've seen them, and uh, they were doing some furniture giveaway, but in the back of their tiny little warehouse, there was a nice Duncan Fife table, 
you know, it's a mahogany table. It's got the big spread legs and all of that. And I said, well, that's really a nice table. And they said, at that moment, someone walked up to it with a sledgehammer and broke it in half. And I said, that's a little unusual. And they said, well, nobody wants that old brown furniture. We have to send it to the tip. And I said, no, you don't necessarily have to do that. So if I pay for a cargo container and land it on your site and you load it and ship it to the United States, uh, and I sell it in my stores, I'll split the profits with you. Uh, and we've been doing that for the last, what, almost 20 years. What I find fascinating is how your mind works in terms of you see something, and whereas somebody else sees it as rubbish, you see it as a solution. So every, <laughs> I hate to be trite, but every problem is an opportunity. It's just, that's how life is. And so, you know, right now, logistics in the United States is turned upside down. All the normal areas of transit of materials are really very strange right now. So I live within 500 miles of San Francisco. I live 3,000 miles away from New Jersey on the East Coast. Uh, I get product from both of those areas. Sometimes I need to use third-party vendors, especially in California, because I get a lot of material out of the Bay Area, and I can't just run it with all of my own trucks, even though I have, what is it, um, 400 trailers uh, to move product around. You know, sometimes I just can't. So I'll go to a third party and have them bring the product up. Normally, the transit from San Francisco to Eugene is around $2 a mile, so about $1,000. Transit to come from San Francisco to Eugene today is, is $4,000. I can get product out of New Jersey cheaper than I can from 500 miles away, which means that the backhaul lanes, the lanes of moving product around the United States are now completely twisted up around. If you can take advantage of that by saying, okay, I will find where those haul lanes are that are very cheap and go to those areas to get product to bring in, then you will be able to make bank on it because on a container, you can move 40,000 to 45,000 pounds of product. So every solution is generally because of a problem. What drives you to do that? I need the money. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about it, we started this discussion with what are we going to do about the charitable needs of our community and how are we going to deal with the, you know, the massive displacement being as a result of the forest products industry. So if you're going to find a way to create the capital and the resources to make it possible to do something about this, you're going to have to have those resources and they got to come from somewhere. And you can do the tin cup circuit and ask for money all day long, but it ain't going to be enough. So it's better for you to create the avenues and the infrastructure to go ahead and do that yourself. And in the process of doing that, by the way, that means that you can pivot very quickly to deal with community needs in an unusual fashion. You know, if we, whether it's PPE or whether it's uh, food or water or even a mobile canteen, you know, a bus that can take, uh, you know, food out to camps or people where they're displaced. We have that infrastructure now, which is available to the public sector in partnership with us to address emergency services and then help people back on their get to viability by moving it through our various program bases. Without the resources, you can't do that. And if you depend on the public sector in this country, you're gonna wait a long time. One of the things that I find curious is that even in this country, we still have the need for social enterprises, charities, churches, synagogues, mosques, gurdwaras to come in and bolster what is going on in the communities and provide care. 
I just wonder how you feel. I mean, I know this is a job, this is a vocation, and clearly you enjoy solving problems. But how does it make you feel to know that if you and the 700 plus people that you employ at Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County were not around, you know, how does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel like we've got more work to do. Uh, I mean, the truth is, and, and you brought up an interesting point about the UK, you actually want those charity shops. You do want those synagogues and faith communities to be involved because that, that means that the problems of our society are not the other. It's not somebody else's problem. It's not the government's problem. It's a community problem. And all of the, this is about creating community. If a community does not recognize and accept the responsibility for its own problems, then it becomes somebody else. And who knows your problems better than your local community? So if you don't do the grassroots work and holding the community together, you don't get a viable community in the long term. You tend to end up having a stratified or an alienated population in there because you're not personally involved. And I didn't talk about how many volunteers we have. We have about 3,000 volunteers that deal with the various programs the same as they fall. Everything from churches that provide housing for people in the winter emergencies or else, um, you know, volunteering in food banks or childcare centers or in the schools or whatever else. All of that is uh, helping to develop a system where your entire community is involved in not only the problems of our community, which you complain about, but the solutions which you can feel good about. So this is allowing you to take both your social capital and the physical capital, bring them together to solve local problems without asking a third party to do so. But doesn't it at some point mean, and you are right, of course you're right, because who can fix a community better than those within the community? But at some point, surely the government should not, of any country, should not be absolved of being integrated within those communities. And yeah. Isn't it funny how this is where the teeth come out? So, yeah, the, the public sector would be delighted if I just sort of said, don't worry about it all, it'll take care of it. But uh, as, uh, as we've known in this community, especially during that COVID crisis, the public sector is well aware that we bring resources to the plate that they don't have. I turn to them and say, by the way, there's that thing called money that you guys have got. And the other thing is that you can bend the rules to fit my needs when I need you to. So I have a relationship, well, same as DePaul, not me. Uh, same as DePaul has a relationship with the public sector that is both um, uh, adversarial in some circumstances, you guys aren't doing enough, and also complementary. So an example of that was uh, uh, early on in COVID-19 when we went into isolation over here, uh, suddenly we had to have a way to deal with the very large homeless population in a way that was socially distanced and safe, you know, safe PPE and so forth. The public sector had no way to put that in place. And basically it had to be done very quickly uh, because when the governor announced that we were going into lockdown, the notice was 12 hours. Uh, and yet how are you going to empty your homeless camps to get them socially distanced? How are you going to get more people off the street? Because it fell after it was still winter. What are you going to do to do all of that? Well, the public sector approached me on Sunday at two o'clock in the afternoon and said, can you set up mass shelters in our public fairgrounds, our large open buildings in the next 48 hours 
to house an extra 200 people. And uh, that would include the showers, the laundry, the blankets, the bedding, the food, the PPE, everything that could go in there and the transportation to people over there. And I said, yes, you send money and don't let the rules get in the way. And I'll have those places open for you in 48 hours. And we did. What is it that led you to St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County? So the first director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County was my father. He uh, started the organization along with, of course, the board and the volunteers in, in 1955 uh, and ran the organization until his death in 1984. In 1971, I was a freshly minted graduate from the University of Oregon that was with stars in my eyes and uh, great aspirations that I would become a wonderful Byzantine historian. But my dad was getting old and I said, um, I'm not doing anything, you need some help. And he said, well, yeah, I'd like to go on vacation with your mother. And uh, I said, well, I know the place I've been around all my life. I started stamping bags in 1956. And I said, will you pay me? And he said, yeah, I'll pay you. And, princely sum of whatever it was. And uh, he got back from vacation a couple months later, had a wonderful time. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. And he said, well, until you decide what you're going to do, you want to work for me because I could use the help. I said, sure. And it occurred to me as I was doing that over that period of 1971 for a few years thereafter, that what I saw here was an interesting opportunity to blend business and for whatever reason, I discovered that I like business. I like making money. It's kind of fun. But I didn't want to make money for some bloody corporation. I wanted to do it for some purpose. And this organization was kind of in business, but it wasn't in business. It wasn't really in business. So gross receipts in 1971 was $100,000. I said, what if you really turn this into a business? What if you made this a business business, you know, a profit generating center that created capital, but instead of putting capital back into the private sector in the terms of profits for the general stockholders or for me, what if you were to take it and say, we're going to use this as a tool for social justice? What is next for you, for St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County? And actually, most importantly, what is next for Terry McDonald's taking over the world? Well, I'm going to retire. We're working through a process of getting my replacement in place, and then the board will put me into an emeritus position and saying, please don't go away. Uh, and don't, uh, so we just like to have the, why don't, we, why don't you start dreaming big and stop screwing around? Uh, so, you know, what's next? Well, there's a little project in Portland that uh, I'm thinking about doing. There's also, you know, I'm thinking about manufacturing uh, mobile homes, setting up a factory to manufacture it for low-income use because we can't produce enough housing fast enough. I'm still absolutely fascinated by the waste stream and how badly it's put together and how we could put it together. I'd like to see product stewardship bills around the United States and various other states other than the three that are doing it currently. It's a whole concept of how to deal with product stewardship that's different than in the United Kingdom. And I'd like to figure out how to deal more, well, no longer the United Kingdom, it's the EU uh, has done a good job of making product stewardship more robust than it is in the United States. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with the climate change that's going on here, because we can see that's going to change things pretty dramatically. So why not find a way to knit all these pieces together and anticipate the problems instead of being reactive to the problems? 
That was Terry McDonald, Executive Director of St. Vincent de Paul in Eugene, Oregon. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for our master's programme by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.